first reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, it's verses 1 to 7. Um, you can find that on page 685 if you've got one of the blue Bibles from here. From chapter 6, verse 1, in Isaiah it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You can find that on page 1239 of the Blue Bibles. From verse 1 of chapter 4, it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down, they, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Really, the way I wanted to start off today um, was to ask you, how good is your imagination? You had a chance to test that out then, didn't you? How good was your imagination watching that video? It was impossible. 
I was hoping it would get right by the time we got to Isaiah because I wanted you to see the Isaiah bit, but it didn't work. That's okay. You see, the question is, how good are we in imagining things? How good are you at it? Are you creative? If you are, and I know some of you are creative geniuses, it's too strong a phrase to say, I hate you, but I'm really jealous of you because I'm rubbish at being imaginative. I can't do it. I can't think about seeing things that aren't in front of me. I find it really, really hard to be imaginative. I really struggle to see what things look like. As uh, next week the shed will be finished or very close to being finished, our um, garage at our place turning into our um, church office and step by step, so uh, people helping do it, Steve, David, Jen, talk about, oh, it's going to look like this. And then they go, yeah, yeah, it's going to look like this. We'll have this here. And they say, yeah, you see that, Michael? I go, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I can't see it. And they go, okay. And I step back and I go through and I'll say, well, this will look like this here. And I, and I kind of end up nodding and going, okay, I'll take your word for it. Because I can't imagine things very well like, until I see it. Once I see it, I can critique it like no one's business and make it better. But I can't do anything until, that, until it's there. We're all different in that way. It's why revelation is so helpful. It's why it's so great. It helps us picture what we can't. It takes us beyond what's possible for us to understand because it's not of this world and give us a grander picture of God. We're going into this heavenly realm using what we know of the world and using that imagery to help us understand. And it's spectacular. If I was trying to describe the throne room in, in chapter 4, it would be something more like there was a big chair and God was on it and he's the king, he rules, so everyone worship him. That's not very inspiring. It's true, it's kind of where we need to go in this passage, but you don't get the depth and riches of it because here we have this great depth that helps us understand greater who God is and what he's on about. Why can't the Bible sometimes just say it plainly so we can all understand? Because God is God, bigger than us, and we can't fathom him, and so he uses what we are able to fathom to understand him a bit better, to understand how great he is. Like those four living creatures that we'll get to a bit later. The, you know, I'd, I'd see them as, oh, I'd say there's four people that are ruling and they're better than everyone. And then we have this kind of wacky picture of these looking like oxes and all sorts of things, which and um, we saw, you got a glimpse of the seraphim in the video. The picture, the imagery of it is pointing us to something about the magnitude of God. So today, even if your imagination is broken, a little bit like me, if you can let your imagination run wild, what we want to do is let the imagery that God has given us in Revelation help us see and understand him better. That's our goal, to marvel at the power and the glory of the sovereign God. That's what we want to do. Really, what we see in Revelation 4 is why we say we exist for God's glory, why it's on our banner as what we say is primarily important. We exist for God's glory because here is a picture 
of the throne room with God on it. And all of us bow down before this God at some point, willingly or not. So that's where we're going to go today. I really love chapter 4 and chapter 5. I can't wait for next week, chapter 5. It's even, they're kind of the same. They're kind of together. But next week's even, even more spectacular. And the imagery next week is mind-blowing. The lion and the lamb is just amazing. You've got to read it all week. It's so good. But I have a question for you. A question I want to see if you can answer by the end of the talk when I bring it up again. As we look at Revelation chapter 4... Can you see what's missing? What the problem with chapter 4 is? As we get to that, um, I'll ask you that at the end and maybe you can have a, have a crack at that in your own mind as to what it is. Well, let's get stuck into chapter 4. Uh, in, the out, in the outline, um, I've put down there uh, in the, on page number 8 uh, four things of what John saw and heard. I'm going to sneak in a fifth one, uh, and we're going to see what's going on in this uh, in this uh, chapter. And before we do that, let's get right to the beginning of uh, verse 1. I didn't put slides up today, so that's kind of handy. Uh, so in verse 1, chapter 4, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me. And we'll get to the vision in a moment. He was in the spirit again. Now you, you can conjecture exactly what's going on and how it all works. And, and I don't think we can particularly nail it down. But the way I kind of, kind of see it, it's kind of like um, in those movies sometimes when people talk about how they see themselves outside of their own body and kind of watching everything taking place. Or you kind of just see that in, in life, you kind of see, I kind of feel like sometimes I'm out of body and I see what's going on around me um, as if I'm not in there. That kind of idea is what, it, what, it, what it's saying um, without needing to worry about it or go into the depths of it and getting all hooked up into it. But he looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. It's not like there's an actual wooden door that is there. It's the, on the, his heaven... And in there is the throne. So there's a door. And what we see is that what's taken place before was a first vision. In the spirit, he was the first time in the first vision. And in that spirit, in that vision, we saw what was going on now. We looked at a couple of the churches. Jesus was speaking to the seven churches. If you flick back and you can see the headings of all those different churches he spoke to and gave them a word about what's going on for them now and how they need to relate to him. And he's encouraging them, he's rebuking them and he's saying, I'm the Lord, I'm the ruler, you need to follow me right now. This is the vision that John saw. He's sovereign. And these seven churches, seven being a complete, whole, full number, means it's all the church. That you put all that together, it's for all the church. And so, after that, he's in the spirit again, a second vision. This vision is for what is to come. Particularly when we get to uh, the rest of uh, Revelation uh, next year, when we do all of six and beyond, and we see what is to come and the seals, seals are opened and that the victory that is to be consummated when Jesus returns and all of the glory of God coming to take place, what is to come? 
And so when we see what is to come, we get a picture of the throne and the rule. And that is where we land now. And so he is at the door of heaven and there before him, the first thing we see is A, sitting on the throne. There was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of... So he had the appearance of... We're not saying the one who is on the throne is made up of... What do we see? Jasper and Carnelian. No, it's the appearance of... We kind of get an image of what this, uh, what this character on the throne is like. Jasper and Carnelian, and then even a little bit kind of crazier maybe, a rainbow resembling an emerald. This one on the throne, God, is described beyond just saying, oh, he's pretty valuable, the most valuable, precious jewels, the priceless value of the Carnelian and the Jasper is this one on the throne. He's that priceless and valuable. And a rainbow resembling an emerald. Now, I think with both of these, we see the value of the Jasper and Carnelian through the Old Testament and, and we see in um, Ezekiel, which we won't go into now, that this idea picked up. And if we go back to Genesis and we see the significance of the rainbow, God making covenant promises that he is going to be with his people, that he is not going to forsake them, there is not going to be another flood again and that there is a covenant that God is going to continue to make with his people, this God on the throne is the God who keeps his promises and makes covenants forever. The beginning of the relationship is not forgotten when we're at the end in the throne. It's a beautiful picture of a glorious, unimaginable, priceless God. Get to see why having this imagery is really good and how it challenges us to reconsider how great God is. And notice the structure here that's throughout the whole picture, which is really cool to see. And can I encourage you, if you are a little bit of an arty person, you are a bit imaginative with a bit of pen, paper, uh, paint, whatever, have a crack at painting chapter 4 and chapter 5. Just have a go at it. And, and, and it's kind of fun to do and really interesting to see what you come up with because it's kind of impossible to do on one level. But when you do it, it's a circle. It's encircled the throne. It was the rainbow. And we see the, the 24 other thrones and the elders and then the four living creatures and then we go beyond. It's this picture of everything being centred around the throne. Everything, all of existence, forever, into all eternity, is centred on the throne. Of God. Nothing is not around worshipping the throne. That is what we see. So there we have the throne. Then we get to 24 elders surrounding the throne. The second one, B. 24 other thrones were seated on them, were 24 elders. Here we have, well, who, are, who are these people? Are they people? What, what's going on here? We see that they're dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, as in most of Revelation, there is some conjecture and sometimes you can go either way and sometimes 
wildly outrageous speculation. But here I think what we're seeing is with 24 other thrones, we have in a in the Old Testament and the New Testament, two very clear numbers that are brought up over and over and over again. There are 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And in all of the Old Testament, that 12 tribes represents all of God's people. And we see um, in Revelation that brought up, and then we also see there are 12 kind of apostles later on in Revelation as well. And when you bring that together outside of the tribes of Israel with the new covenant, you've got 24, meaning all of God's people, the old covenant and the new covenant coming together, everyone, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, everyone around the throne. This is not just for the Jews, this is not just for the Gentiles, this is everyone together. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Why dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads? Well, just think about it for a moment, the context of the letter. We know, um, as, um, back when I spoke on chapter 1 the first week, that this is a vision for John for God's people in a time when Rome ruled and persecuted Christians. And here we have those dressed in white and had crowns of gold. That's not the picture that they're currently facing to the seven churches. They're not facing that. They're facing persecution. They're not white. They face blood. They don't have crowns. They are mocked. And so the point is, at the throne, we see what the true reality actually is. The spiritual reality is that the 24 elders are seated around the throne, that they're already in the heavens. And that's not something that's uncommon to the New Testament, is it? You go to Colossians, you go to Ephesians. The Apostle Paul constantly writes about how you live following God now because your place in heaven is already there. And here, these 24 thrones, we see, are dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Another spectacular imagery seeing what's taking place in the throne room. And then we get to the throne and we see that there's something from the throne and before the throne in part C. Verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and pearls of thunder. Flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder. This is a picture quite obviously, of awe and reverence and absolute power. When you think of lightning and thunderstorms, they are spectacular. They're scary spectacular too, aren't they? They cause great damage. But they are spectacular to see as well. Unbelievable to witness. Like that uh, video about holiness was trying to point out that we couldn't quite get is that God's holiness like the sun, it is so spectacular, it gives us all life, the sun. There's no sun, there's no life. But yet, if you closer and closer to it, you disappear. You disintegrate. And you're not even anywhere near it because it's so spectacular and awesome. Here, the awe and awesomeness from the throne... It's pictured with flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. Have you ever watched a thunderstorm and marveled at it? They're spectacular. Growing up in Sydney, when they seem to be every second, 
every second week. You got to see lots of them. And Jen used to sit on the, on the porch outside the front of her house with her sister, under, under, undercover, safe, relatively, I, I suppose, and just would sit there and watch them and enjoy the spectacular view of it because of how powerful and majestic they are. And yet at the same time, our kids freak out with that thunderclap because it's loud and it's terrifying and it's awesome. That's from the throne. That's what we're seeing about this type of God. And then, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. What are we, what are we saying there? Well, I think over and over again when we see this, we're actually seeing seven lamps, the seven spirits of God, is the one complete, perfect Holy Spirit of God. Is that Revelation is very Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as brought up in the first week. And here we see there, when you've got the throne, before the throne is the Spirit of God. And He is complete, He's perfect. That's why it's described as seven lamps blazing. Spectacular picture. Now, amongst this great and mighty picture, there is kind of the enemy in the, in the Bible of this glorious magnificence. The sea. The sea is described as chaotic, often depicted as the evil because it's uncontrollable. The Jews did, weren't really seafarers because of it, right? They, they saw the sea as something terrifying. It was kind of evil, you know, epitome kind of thing. And they had this view of it. And so before the throne, in verse 6, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. See, I think we're seeing here the sea being calmed. What's chaotic, what's seen as being evil, what's out of control from the throne, the one that has lightning flashes and rumbling and pearl of thunder where the spirit of God is, is being calmed. Because it can't compete. It's not in charge. It's not going to battle against God in the throne room. And so the image is of calmness, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. God is very good at imagery to describe himself, to help us see what he's like. So we've got this amazing throne that is priceless. We've got these elders there amongst them, dressed in white, crowned, uh, with crowns of gold. We've got the throne flashing with lightning and thunder. We've got these blazing lamps of the Spirit of God. We've got the chaos of the sea, calm. And then we've got the centre around the throne. Right in the midst of it, right in the middle, we have really vivid imagery. The four living creatures. What did John see in here? Have a look at the second part of verse 6 to verse 8 with me. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. What amazing imagery. 
the four living creatures. This is imagery that's picked up in the Old Testament. It seems that uh, this vision that John's been given has been borrowed from Ezekiel and uh, Ezekiel and, uh, and Daniel uh, and Isaiah rather, and and we see that they talk about these kind of powerful uh, creatures. Ezekiel, um, if you wanted to look it up in chapter one, five to twenty-one, and chapter ten, one to twenty, um, we, we, you get this picture of them. And it seems in Ezekiel they're the most powerful, the most regal creatures. They carry God's throne. John, in his imagery, in his vision that he's recalling, it's kind of twisted and, and changed a little bit. And I, I think what we're seeing here is that these are in the centre, right there in the throne room. If we go back to the temple, no one can get into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and then there's all these conditions once in a, And here, these creatures are right in there because they're the most superior in all of God's creation. Nothing is hidden from them. I think that's what we can take from the eyes. They've got eyes everywhere. That is to say, they see. Everything is there. They're in the centre of the throne. I think there's lots of ways people have taken this over the time. I think that makes the most sense of how it's used in Ezekiel. And I, and I didn't get time to go into it in depth. But actually, there's um, Jewish literature of the time which describes these four characters like that as the most supreme beings, which seems to just make sense of as they're reading it, the reference to that um, make makes sense. But what's more important is not trying to figure out are they there and are we going to see them in heaven and all that kind of stuff when clearly it's imagery and how it takes place. It's what they say that matters. Where they are that matters. They're in the centre of God's throne. So their message is central. And this is the picture of how everything is moving towards. This is where everything goes towards. This is the central message. What do they say? It's the reading from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Revelation 4, 8, uh, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These supreme creatures aren't trying to compete against God. They're in the middle, in the centre, proclaiming how spectacular and holy God is. How he always has been that way, will always be that way. This is our God. That is what they're to do. They're describing the character of God as holy. That's why I really encourage you to see that video. I think it's a really helpful biblical way of seeing how holiness is such a key theme throughout the whole of the Bible. Because it ends here. God's supreme holiness. It's more than just purity. It's far more than that. It's his awesome splendor. It's his otherness that is not us. They never stop saying, holy, 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 these supreme beings. And yet, look at all the supreme beings, the supreme dictators and rulers and politicians and those in power with their companies. They never stop doing Psalm 2, fighting against the Lord and his anointed one. But this is where everything is to go. It's a great picture. 
See, what they do, my last point, is they set out to give acknowledgement and praise to God. And they're not the only ones. We see it's not just these creatures, the 24 elders, we go back to them, look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him, that's what saying holy, holy, holy is, to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. What happens? You've got, you've got the, uh, you've got the um, living creatures. The living creatures in spectacular uh, way describe God's character and you've got the 24 elders they respond by describing what God's done and why that makes him holy and worthy of praise because he creates he makes all things by his will you are worthy because you created is the response it is the illust- it is God creating out of nothing, not out of something. That's what makes him other, holy. God wanted it to happen, it happens. He didn't think, I need to build a shed, I need to go and buy some wood, I need to get some nails, then I've got to go back to Bunnings, and then I've got to, then I've got to go back to Bunnings again, and back to Bunnings again, I'm so sick of Bunnings. He doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is go, let there be life and it's made that is mind-blowing out of nothing god creates we don't create we manufacture we things he creates the technical word for it out of nothing ex nihilo god makes out of nothing it's spectacular it's a stumbling block for many people how could that possibly be it can possibly be because he's not us he's other than us it's been revealed to us why can't it be that is how spectacular god is his holy character his power and sovereignty to create with nothing other than he wants it to happen. It's a spectacular vision of the throne. Why was he shown this vision? Why was John shown this vision? I've got three things out of many. The glory of God on display as all creation responds is what we see. See, it's, a, it's not just the, oh, they respond to God, they respond to God. It's the living creatures worship him and in response to that, whenever they do that, oh, the 24 creatures do that and as we see throughout, it's they do that and it offends back and it's this continual praising of God because of who he is. This is what we see, is why the vision has been shown that God's sovereignty is unquestioned. 
This is not a throne that will ever be taken down. No power can defeat him despite the appearances. You are dressed in white. John is on Patmos because he's been kicked there. The Christians in Rome facing persecution with no power, they don't seem to think, it doesn't seem they're God's sovereign because they're being mocked. So you see the vision of the throne room and you get a reality check. Why was he shown the vision? Because even in these hard moments, we marvel at God's holiness. If you take anything away from today, is that you go back and read Revelation 4 again and again, not to try and pull it apart bit by bit, but to just sit there and meditate on God's holiness. How greater he is than you and how you have the privilege to respond to him by saying you are worthy of all praise and glory and honour. He is far bigger, far more complex, far more spectacular, far more majestic than you can possibly imagine. Even though those of you who have got great imaginations, you can't imagine how good he is. But we get this amazing glimpse into it that can carry us on through this life into eternity. It is a great vision, isn't it? So we finish by asking the question, how does this vision shape my life? I want you to have a renewed understanding of holiness and the importance of it. To have it clear what it is, to see that it's God being totally other than everything else. That's what holiness is. And this otherness is his glory and spectacular spectacular. Uh, kind of fearsomeness that we get to approach and yet can destroy us. That his character is full of goodness and, and, uh, and, and uh, love that is holy beyond what we can imagine. We need a renewed understanding of holiness because more and more we go into how we respond and the call is, in many different ways, is for us to be holy. Peter, in his letter, says, be, be holy as I'm holy, referencing the Old Testament. But the Bible says in all sorts of other ways, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. It's being holy, being like him. And it's so deep. It's not just do good, be a good person, make morally right decisions, as if that's the sum of it. We need a renewed understanding of holiness. Surely we need to be a people of praise. The biggest thing I've learnt in our, in our first year is that. I'm really glad that we have that uh, focus and we keep coming back to that and we need to keep going there. See, this uh, on Tuesday, I've got to make a video. Um, as part of the network, we, we've got these great um, uh, uh, studies that have been produced that we're producing on um, discipleship, how you follow Jesus. And we're making videos to go with them. We're going to do them as a sermon series later in the year and in Bible study as well. And we're all going to make videos, and all the, all the centre pastors. And I've got, to, I've got to do a video on overflowing with praise, talk about why I think that's great. That's gave me, give me food 
for thought. What is it? And, and it got me thinking, overflowing with praise, even that statement itself, I just need to get a drink, is actually quite, uh, quite challenging because if we're to be overflowing with praise, that's what it is. It's good, don't step there, all right? Now, overflowing with praise means something, right? Because overflowing with praise means it doesn't all stay in the cup. It means we're supposed to have more than it actually can fit, if that's what we're supposed to do. That's got to challenge us. We're to be a people who see God and his worthiness and we're to overflow with praise. That is, we're not just supposed to be content with a little bit of it or to the top of the brim. We're supposed to have more than actually we can actually fit in. Overflowing with praise. That is what we're to be. We never stop, despite where we may be. Because now with the throne of God and even next week, which is even better with the lion and the lamb, we have real perspective on where we are and where we're going. But as we wrap up, what's missing? Remember that question I asked you at the beginning? In chapter 4, what's the problem with chapter 4? Jesus is not there. Well, he is, but he's not outlined. Chapter 4 is, you know, you could, I, at this point, I could preach this sermon, not in a church that's focused on Jesus. Couldn't I? But this is together with chapter 5, where Jesus, this is setting the stage for Jesus to come along and be the one who can open the scroll and to give us life. And the only way we have access, the only way we're dressed as the crown is because Jesus makes it possible. He is the one who actually is on the throne in a way that's not even possible. He's a lion and a lamb. That doesn't make sense. Jesus does it. We would have seen it a bit clearer with the video and Jack's reading of it in Isaiah 6 because he turns us, he makes us holy when it should be the other way around. Like in Isaiah 6 where the coal actually touches the unclean lips and instead of the unclean lips uh, infecting, the coal makes clean. Jesus makes us clean. He dies for us. He makes it possible for us not only to have this vision of the throne but to know that's where we belong. How does this vision shape our life? It must take us to humility. It must take us and put us in our place. It must cut down our arrogance, cut down those moments when we want to be more important than ourselves, cut down those moments when we think I am as good as God when we don't even verbalise it. It must be where we see We need Jesus. We need the throne of God. We need to be worshipping him because that's what we're made for. We exist for God's glory. If you're not a Christian today, the challenge of this spectacular uh, uh, book of chapter 4 and chapter 5 next week is that your purpose is to worship God into all eternity. 
He's made it possible for you in Jesus. As we celebrate our birthday next week by giving all praise to God and not making it about ourselves, we're going to see that land. Can I encourage you to turn to Jesus, to trust in him? And can I encourage all of us, day by day, humbly want to see God and never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. Help us to be full of praise for who you are. This picture of the throne room is just spectacular. For the little bit that we understand it today, help help us by your spirit to stir our hearts and minds to love you, honour you, praise you in all things. We thank you that you are a holy God. Amen.